Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey, Danilo from Thinking Critically here. Thinking Critically is a chat show podcast where we take a single concept or idea and discuss what it means within the Dungeons & Dragons framework. Each episode features a different guest from the TTRPG community, and so far I've welcomed actors, designers, and professional DMs. Consider it an NPR-style variety bucket of thought-provoking analysis and humorous anecdotes, where we cover all sorts of things, including the nitty-gritty of how to balance encounters, the perception of D&D in popular culture, and the impact it has on mental health. My hope is that each episode helps you get the most out of your sessions, whatever side of the screen you sit on. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and visit me at thinkingcritically.co.uk. Welcome everybody to another episode. Today we're going to be talking about party makeup and the questions that you're going to be asking yourself as you're putting a party together in that session zero or even before session zero when you're trying to figure out how you're going to fill out the party. We're going to be talking specifically about the roles that can and should be in a properly balanced party to go ahead and make sure that all the jobs necessary in various phases of the game are going to be done. And we're going to be breaking this down into a couple of different categories. We're going to first talk about sort of your mechanical structural elements. What are the key jobs from a largely combat point of view, what are the key jobs that need to be done to go ahead and make sure that that party functions properly? And we're going to break that down into not just kind of party roles, but also certain tropes that will feature throughout various character builds, how that's going to shift in various situations and, and things like that. We're also going to touch on what we're calling social roles and more what are the role play aspects that should be covered by all the players at the table to go ahead and make sure that situationally, if you're dealing with a heavy roleplay situation, you'll have, frankly, all the basic skills covered to go ahead and navigate any kind of social situation, right? So, you know, you'll be able to go ahead and have someone who is expert at persuasion versus intimidation versus deception, things like that, how to go ahead and balance all of those. So we're going to be diving pretty heavily into these. This is definitely going to be a very player-centric episode. I know a lot of folks out there have been asking for things like that. Uh, so 
here we are. And Glenn, if I can go ahead and start with you uh, this time around, because I know that leading into the Drinking and Dragons games that we did a few months ago now at this point, this was really the impetus for this particular episode. So you have a list that you go by every time. What can you tell us about that? What was the genesis of it? And, and how did you finally uh, decide on, on uh, what needed to be included in there? Basically, the way that I set up my pre-gens, and that's pretty much what the balanced party concept is for me, is pretty much only when I'm working with pre-gens for a one-shot or something along those lines that people are going to play. Because I want to make sure that they've got the tools that they're going to need to succeed. Because when you're talking about the, the roles of the party, it can mean so many different things. But when it comes down to the mechanical job, when the sword meets the flesh, where do you need to be? What is your job? What should you be doing? There's a couple of roles that are important. And the way I came to it was, I mean, I'm also a computer gamer too. I played WoW for, well, since it started until probably about eight months ago is when I think I quit most recently. So I brought in some gamer terminology to it. Like I throw out DPS sometimes and that threw Lee off for a minute because he hasn't done that. But damage per second doesn't apply to D&D because you do it in six seconds. But, you know, with some modifications, basically I set up my pre-gen parties to fill the roles of tank, healer, rogue or operator, and arcane caster just because of the different versatility that it brings and then I leave a hybrid spot open, which can be just about anything else. Another way to look at it, as I've been adapting it into more of a D&D &D party style, playing with it since then, because that was the original version. Now I'm kind of leaning towards ranged DPS slash support and melee DPS slash support, basically range damage, support character, melee damage, and support character as those last couple of roles, just to make them a little bit more D&D centric and a little bit less video game focused in terms of their terminology. A lot of our fans are video gamers, so they'll get it. Heck, friend of the show, Danilo, over at Thinking Critically, he uses DPS all the time in his episode. So I will pretty consistently say damage versus DPS because it's just not a term I use. I am not a video gamer at heart, so I, I just don't. But I love elements of video games, and I love bringing some of those elements to the game. So this party structure fits perfectly into the tabletop game. Uh, and what I have found in looking at this structure, and it's what struck me when you gave us this a couple months ago, when we were talking, the three of us, about what we're doing at our various tables, I was like, that's perfect. Like, that is exactly what I'm doing. I wrote characters, and I put a certain number of character options for each of these things that fit perfectly into each of these things without even knowing these terms. And how much easier would it have been for me if I knew these terms, and I then could apply them in the future? Like, it would have made my job easier if I started from this perspective in making these characters. Similarly, if I approach hey, there's a new game coming up. What do you already have? How great would it be if the storyteller said, well, I already have somebody who's kind of doing that mechanical tank role. I already have somebody who's doing the rogue operator role. I will say darn it at that point. But at least I could find something else. And having just gotten done recording our two-part cleric episode, I would also know that I could play a cleric who could very well have that healer job but if need be, fill in that range damage support. Or if, if need be, 
there's even a cleric subclass where I could do the arcane caster bit also. So without having to multi-class, there's ways to do these things. But having this structure is a perfect way to start for the storyteller, but it's an even better way to start for a player. You know what you can do. It's easier language. It's common language if we can get this out there between storytellers and players, between players and players, and so that we can all kind of do that. And so there's less stepping on each other's toes at the table. I think that that's really kind of the key characteristic is that far too often when we think about how to approach combat in a D&D perspective, we think about how much damage can I do to the foes to drop them faster, right? We don't think about particularly the the support role, you know, the buffing and debuffing. Because far too often, the character in your party that's going to have your buffs and your debuffs is either going to be your cleric, who is spending the first three rounds swinging his mace because nobody needs any healing yet, right? As opposed to, like, how can I impose disadvantage? How can I go ahead and make sure that you know my fighter is hitting the target that he's at or how can I go ahead and make sure that my rogue is not being seen or something like that so it's either the cleric or it's the it's the arcane caster and again if I'm the arcane caster and I've got the choice between I'm going to witch bolt that guy there and hold him into my lightning cage or I'm going to go ahead and get my healer temporary hit points so that they can go ahead and wait in more and that so our, our healer doesn't drop I mean th- think about your total party kill situation and how often is a total party kill the result of a battle where the healer dies super early and isn't available to go ahead and keep everybody else alive, right? And so that's really where those support roles are really neglected, but super, super important. You could almost add a seventh category here and call it healing support. See, I lump that in. In my opinion, almost every support character has some form of backup heal available. So I just kind of consider it part of support, this backup heal. Yeah, even if it's just that I can do the medicine check pretty good, so I can at least stabilize you. So I absolutely agree with you, Josh. The ability to kind of recognize where these things fall and be able to, to, to work in. One of my games currently, our paladin is our melee support character. He is consistently buffing the entire party. He puts himself on the battlefield where he can provide the best save support to the characters that need it. So he is buffing just by being present. And when he's, and he's not often casting spells, but he's waiting for that opportune time. And then he strikes, applies the smite. So he is really doing that melee damage support role, but heavy on the support. He is exceptional at finding those moments. Being in the right place at the right time is something I think that particular player, kudos, hands held high for uh, Doran. You say we're talking about Doran, right? He does an excellent job as being a support paladin who's still right there. I mean, he is a solid, prominent member of the party, but he doesn't have to be the guy in the spotlight. He is there throwing blows with the best of them when the fight calls for, but when when there's too many people damaged for for the healer to hit it, He's right there with the backup lay on hands, and he's always in position. 
So the character that comes to mind about this, if we think to the Candlekeep actual play that we're doing, when Kilvarix was in game one, if Kilvarix was there needing to support, he was there. If he was not there needing to support, he was right there with Flame Strike to go ahead and throw down some damage. You know, but he was always making sure that, like, anytime Simeon would get hit by a book and be dropped to zero hit points, he made sure that Simeon was standing back up to get hit by a book again. So that was, you know. Interesting and very cool thing to say is playing Simeon within the game, I made, despite being knocked out at least three times over the course of multiple games, I have only had to roll, I think, two death saves because somebody was always there. Often before that round was out, I was already back up. That is an exceptionally well-balanced party that had the benefit of having a bunch of players who understood these roles, even if they weren't necessarily doing them by name. And honestly, I would love to say that as the storyteller that I had any part in that whatsoever, but I'll be, I'll be totally honest. And I mean, and you guys know, I did not prescribe any characters to anybody that's playing that game. I very much said, come to me with what you want to play. We'll make it work. Like, we're not going to, you know, that's just been my, that's very much my storytelling philosophy anyway, that, you know, especially from a homebrewing campaign point of view, I can go ahead and take my world and fit it around the party without too much difficulty, but I want them to be invested in the players that they're playing. And so even in the, in the actual play, right, where, you know, we're playing these contained modules, they've got kind of a linear progression and everything like that. But, you know, I want the players to be engaged. I want the characters to be engaging, right? And I think that that's, that that's kind of how that happens. And so just the fact that we kind of have fallen into this role, although I, I think there's still some debate between Simeon and Sprocket about who the tank is. And that's a joke for anybody that has listened to the actual play because neither of them are a good tank. My point is that while we did not set out and say, okay, who's going to be the tank and who's going to be the rogue and who's going to be my damage support. Those roles just all kind of emerged. And I think that you're absolutely right. But I think the point you're speaking to kind of illustrates perfectly the fact that what we're talking about when we're talking about creating a balanced party as pregens originally is now relating to a party of PCs. Cause you may not have noticed it, Josh, but in the candle keep chat, we were discussing character concepts and filling roles together not by calling them out, but by like, okay, so who's what? All right, what do we have left then? We could still use an arcane caster. We could use a thief. That's how I became an artificer. I merged them. <laughs> so you're as a player, you guys can talk among yourselves if your storyteller is giving that opportunity as your session zero or pregame before your session zero and plan on these roles. But you don't have to. You can go totally hog wild and do whatever you want and have a whole bunch of Sneaky, run around in the middle of the night, archer people. Pro tip for you storytellers out there. If you are going to run a, a session zero, and by definition of taking a pro tip, you are running a session zero. Take the time to let your players know a brief little elevator pitch prior to the session zero. And allow them the opportunity to have those Facebook chats and person chats. Give them that opportunity to discuss amongst themselves. So when they come to the session zero and then get the full sales pitch, this is the game I want to run. This is the kinds of things I'm looking at. What are you guys interested in playing? This player group already has a good idea. It'll also help you keep from having two players show up set on being the same thing because they already had a chance to talk about it. Yeah, it will really help get things going. I'm not 
necessarily saying pitch a pre-session zero, like a negative one session. What I am saying is, say, I'm running Candle Keep. It's going to be a game with a lot of books. There's going to be mysteries. There's going to be a bunch of mysteries. We've got four to six people that are going to be playing the game. Here's the group chat for everybody. Here's the group Discord for everybody. We're going to meet in a week's time to, to hash out characters and go over the details of the campaign, where we want to start from. If you come to that with an idea of the book you want to play and an idea of your character, that'd be great. But we can hash out and flesh out and build characters then. Bam. That's it. That's all you do. Walk away. As a storyteller, walk away. Answer questions if they're specifically asked if it helps. But step away. Let your players be players. Let them be players with each other. And let them meta a little bit. Let them make sure that their party's going to be successful. Let them pick complementary classes let them build some synergy because that's what what's going to make a party work and that's why these roles are important but it occurs to me you might find some background you might find some stuff that you can mine but we're talking about making sure you choose the roles and trying to balance out a party but in, we also talked about terminology and how everybody's not familiar with it whether it's role playing or gamers so maybe we should take a second and talk about each of the roles absolutely Glenn, why don't you take the first one lead us down the, that path so the first one that I mentioned was tank. Now, when we say tank, it doesn't necessarily mean he's got to be the biggest armored guy. But basically, your tank is your guy who's going to definitely be able to stand in front of the bad guys, take a hit and absorb some damage without falling over, and deal some damage back. He doesn't have to be the best damage dealer either. You got your rogue sneaking up behind him to sneak attack him in the kidney and do yeah. that for you. What we would call in the video game world, you want to draw aggro, right? You want you want all those minions that are running around to stop and face you as the tank instead of running back and attacking your wizard, instead of running back and attacking your healer, instead of running back and attacking your support people. You know. Yeah, when you're moving in combat, you want to be the guy who steps between your two allies so that all three enemies can hit you to make yourself more of a target and give them the opportunity to separate themselves from one of the enemies and, a little and, bit. And first of all, I want to let everybody know I actually knew the term aggro. I actually knew that one. But what I did want to say is if you're taking the mechanical role, you're taking that constructive role of being a tank, there are two different ways to kind of flavor that. You can be the tank that's the big damage dealer, so the enemy wants to get you because you can deal the most damage. Or you can be the tank who's just well-shielded. You can be that tank who's got Sentinel and all these other things. Nobody gets past you. Nobody deals the full amount of damage because you're there. You're the knight in shining armor. There's all kinds of different ways to apply that. There are cleric classes for that. There are fighter classes for that. There are paladin classes for that. Hell, there are ways to build all kinds of tanky things that you might not think about. So you can express this role in so many different ways. Don't believe it's just a fighter. Don't believe. Yes, never hear any of these roles and think it's just one thing. Don't believe it's thing. just a barbarian. You, If you are dealing consistently large amounts of damage, you could do that and be a rogue. And a rogue garnering a lot of attention has a very high AC, he's tanking just the same because he's not getting hit. He's still in the fight. It's not my best suggestion for most rogue subclasses, but there are... No, but if you're making a sneaky party, a swashbuckler can be a, your tank. A swashbuckler makes a fantastic tank. You know, you can do that. There are different ways to build it, and I strongly suggest 
find different ways to express yeah. these rules. There's never anything that is more appealing in a battle like that than watching one person who ran this obscene flank around the left-hand side and five guys from the other side decided to start chasing him and can't catch him because he's too fast. It's like, okay, those five guys are now out of the battle and we don't need to worry about them. We can take care about the rest of them and then we can squeak, you know, when we're at full strength, we can go take on those five guys that decided to go ahead and run around and get tired, you know? Like, absolutely, yeah. Action economy is everything. A thief, I've got a second story thief that aggros all day long in one of my games. Why? Because this character takes very little damage. Between all of it, it's a higher level campaign, but between the high AC, the mobility of the character, and the features of the character, even hits that land are typically softened. And because of that, if four or five other characters are attacking, only one of them lands, that is no different than hitting a fighter with 100 points. That's still a bunch of damage that didn't go to the pointy hat in the back. By the way, that is a great expression of how to manipulate action economy. If five people are taking on one and only one of them is hitting, that's five. That's four actions that were wasted on the part of the enemy. And so let's compare that a little bit with the the more rogue operator character versus the rogue tank character, right? So the rogue operator is going to be the one that while the tank is drawing the attention of the big bad or whoever it is that they're facing, the rogue operator is the one kind of like like a, a more traditional swashbuckler role who's going to be hiding in the shadows, sneaking into the battle, doing sneak attack, and then disappearing into the wall like he was never even there. That's really going to be the more operator type character. The the one who is able to, you know, in a in a prolonged kind of setup is one that's able to set traps to go ahead and, you know, to, to set, set up something so that the tank who can push an enemy back either with Sentinel or is a Tempest Cleric or something like that can manipulate the position of an enemy and, you know... I mean, a swashbuckler is just as effective hiding in the shadows and running out of them to stab people as he is if somebody gets pushed into him and now he gets to go ahead and stab them from behind when they don't even know that he's there. Like, that is exactly the role of where your rogue operator is going to be. And it's a little bit different than the rogue that is going to be be upfront and trying to draw an attention. A rogue scout with skirmisher who's hiding in shadows or even a rogue thief who knows that the goal is to steal the ruby of Agonon before it can be used in a ritual. The party's fighting. Meanwhile, the rogue is skirting the shadows, going around and getting the thing. That is absolutely the way it goes. Or if you're fighting a low-level campaign and your phantom watches a bunch of people die and makes a bunch of trinkets out of them right in front of the rest of the goblins or kobolds, I think the rogue operator in the end, I think that the role name needs to be changed. That's why I threw operator on because rogue is actually a class and it's not necessarily a rogue. I think in the end, because I, I think in the end, it'd be more like a skirmisher, a mobility unit because they're the flanker. They're the the surprise up your sleeve. That That's that role. It's not, this isn't an exactly the same situation, but in I was playing in a Tomb of Annihilation game and... I mean, look, that module's been out forever, so I'm gonna, not going to worry too much about spoilers, but there's this one part where you are in this gigantic temple, home to the to the Yanti, and depending on how you move through this temple, there is this magical gong, or this magical bell that will basically alert the entirety of the Yanti that live there, that there are invaders, and that, you know, they need to go to that, <laughs> go to that place to go ahead and deal with them. And the way that we kind of handled that is that, you know, we 
kind of very carefully moved up there. And then we saw we saw the bell. We had to go ahead and take out a couple of the Yanti to kind of get where we were going. Our tank went up and basically engaged them. But before he did that, there was a whole section of the party that was the sneaky party that went around to the bell. Basically, I was playing my my fire wizard, Kenku, waited for the bad guys to to turn from away from the tank to run towards the bell. And I had a wall of fire that I put up right, at, right as they started to go ahead and cross it. There was another wizard there that basically reduced the size of the bell down to this little tiny thing so it didn't work anymore. You know, like like all that kind of thing. And like all that stuff, that's that scenario operations type unit where it they're not engaging the enemies directly but what instead they are doing is making sure that the battlefield is properly slanted in out in our direction right you know so skirmishing is definitely part of that you know battlefield tactics are a part of it setting the trap everything like that i mean all that that's a role that has a lot of diversity uh depending on the situation that, that you're looking at it's kind of a jack of all trades exactly yep Bards, yep. rogues rangers all fit there Oh, yeah. Bardic inspiration? Absolutely, yeah. Fighter Battlemasters can fill that role because they do a lot of battlefield control. Any spellcaster whose focus is battlefield control can easily fall into this banneret. An artificer could run your, your operator mobility. There's a too, number yes. of things that fall into that. Don't think it has to be stealth, but think about it as who's going to get a, around, who's going to get to where they need to be to impact things and not necessarily draw that aggro, but certainly make sure the unit is effective. And that's where that is. Great, great segue. Josh, what do you think about the healer as a role for the party? Where do you think that falls? Yeah, we, we talked about the healer a little bit earlier about how, you know, sometimes the healer kind of winds up in this odd spot where depending on how they're built, they don't necessarily have buffs that can go off in the first couple of rounds before the tank starts taking damage before anybody really gets to the point that their heals are going to be effective. Because when you have limited scope of heals, you want to make sure that you don't waste them, right? Like if your fighter is only down one hit point, you don't want to go ahead and use your heal, you know, to go ahead and heal them for a D6 worth of damage because it's going to be, that, that's going to be a waste, right? So, you know, the healer really kind of has to play this kind of hybrid role where they need to go ahead and have something that they can do before the need for their healing comes up, but they need to be able to pivot immediately at the point, in fact, not at the point, but before the point that their healing is necessary. They need to know more than anything else. They need to understand the action economy of the party. They need to understand the the round layout of the party. So they, they need to know, okay, so... Here I am. I'm in round two. I'm at initiative 10. It's my turn. What should I be doing now? Or should I be holding my action in case the fighter who goes at seven all of a sudden or, you know, where are the enemies going so that I know that the fighter is about to go ahead and, you know, get the headbutt of doom from Gromps the the orc champion, you know, like like what's gonna happen there, you know, how much and and what can I do to either help him or should I hold back and make sure that he is restored back to that he has more hit points after the fact. So that's that's sort of the role of the healer. The healer really needs to understand how the round is moving and insert themselves when most effective. I mean, obviously they're doing the healing, right? That's the mechanical thing that they're doing. But from more of a how do they fulfill that role, they really need to understand how the round is moving. And they also need to know position. They need to know what spells they have in their arsenal, what range those spells work at, 
what spells are going to work at what ranges so that they know where to be, where the party is. Do I need my party? You know, at lower levels, you need your party to stay in tight. At higher levels, when you have range, you need to be distant. If you're building that life cleric, you can get, well, like heal at like 60 feet, then clearly your party can be more spread out. If they can't, you're telling your, you may be able to get 80 feet ahead of me, but if you do, I, I'm out for you. I got nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're, you're on your own at that point. You learn that real quick in the video game world too. You outrun your healer. Oh, your yeah, bomb. totally. Yeah. And, and it goes the other way too, especially in D and D like Tito, the healer insists on fighting with a dagger. I know that that means that Tito is going to be up close to the bad guys. I need to make sure that I stay 30 feet away from him. However, Andreas, the archer who is always 60 feet behind everybody and is only really in danger. If we have a caster or another archer that we're facing, I don't have to worry about staying 30 feet in front of him because I know that I can move to him in my round, but I want to make sure that I keep Tito within my within my range so that I can be most effective to go ahead and support him. So it's all those sorts of things that the healer, more than anything else, needs to understand. But you're absolutely right, Glenn. Like, outrunning your healer is like, if you Leroy Jenkins, you are gonna die. Like, that's, that's the way that it goes. You cannot and should not ever expect your healer to keep up with your dumbass. And this is not a dig towards any barbarians that run in games I'm in because they do not do this. But I will say this because it's a funny story in that the, one of the barbarians in my game, he always talks about, yeah, I don't want to do that. A barbarian with all the right things can move at an exceptional pace. Don't get that far ahead of your healer. It, mine doesn't, but I know plenty who do. So, <laughs> And you can flavor your healer however you want there's again so many classes that can fill it from divine soul sorcerer to any of the forms of cleric absolutely there's so way again with healer there are so many ways to uh, druids rangers if you do the right things can get there i like rangers as backup healers but yeah but paladins there are a lot of different ways to express this role and when we get into some of the social roles we'll find some ways where you can play other things and augment them with some of these social roles that help you role play. So not only are you mechanically doing these things, but that's the feel that people get out of the character as well. Well, let's see if we can round our way through these last couple on this end a little bit more quickly, and we'll get onto those social roles too. All right, so we've talked about the tank, the healer, and the rogue operator. So for the roles that I have left, the next one that I... I call the arcane caster. It doesn't have to be called the arcane caster. It could be blaster. It could be AOE. It could be the friolator. But you can do that with a lot of things besides specifically arcane. But arcane can also, and this is the part I want you all to think about, bring a lot more to the table than just being a fireball cannon. There's a lot of versatility in arcane casting. If you look at the spell lists and you understand their use and you have an idea of the type of missions you're going on or the type of game you're playing in, you can bring a lot of versatility and support to your party through an arcane caster as well. You just really have to look at your spell list. Look past Firebolt and Fireball. I would say look to your features. We spoke in our cleric episode about a forge cleric that runs in one of my games. He likes, he builds magic items for the party. He is augmenting and supporting through casting or through the expression of his features, his subclass features, the party in ways that are very helpful. So there are things he's done and put in place. An artificer, while it leans more towards the support realm of things, think about an artificer who has like the cannons or whatever. That's a blaster. 
but he can also do different things. An arcane caster with different infusions can do some really cool things to take care of the party in different ways. So how do we think that the melee and ranged support roles augment or come from these other archetypes that we've already talked about? So the biggest thing they bring to the table is versatility. Regardless of what class you choose or what class and subclass mix you choose, whenever you're looking at a damage support character type, it's going to bring a few different things to the table, whether it's a paladin being a frontline healer and buffer plus their auras, or a ranger in the back who's also a backup healer because they have access to healing spells, or a bard who can be a backup healer or frontline fighter or mobile character. At that point, you're really just looking at thinking of your party formation. Right. So the way that I think of it and balancing it out is you got either you got maybe two major formations for a party line of three in the front line of three in the back or two, two and two. Right. So you got your tank and your melee damage. That's your front line. That's your two for the very front. You can float anybody to the front if you need to adjust in the back. You've got your arcane caster and your ranged damage support and in the middle you have your two mobile classes which is your operator or mobility class and your healer who has to be johnny on the spot wherever somebody dies so those other two classes are just augmenting the other roles but in the front line or the back line but you can do that with so many class combinations that you know it's not limiting at all it's just a way to really build an effective six-man combat machine for DD in terms of the balance yeah, when you're talking about support, you're talking about any role can support a different role with the expression of a subclass. You can use a subclass to bring up and, and, and increase and improve your primary role, or you can use that to generate and create the secondary role. Equally, you can use the expression of taking feet selections to do the same thing. So you take a couple feats and all of a sudden you're a little bit better at tanking than you were. You might be a healer who can tank simply by taking the right feat selection or the or choosing the right spells in that moment. So a healer could become a tank just by wearing the right armor and picking the right spells for an individual battle. So you can alter your functional role with spell selection as a caster in many ways. So when you're talking about these support roles, think about it in that in, in that regard. See, it's all very simple and yet so complex. <laughs> very. There are options. There are so many options. And that's that's honestly, you know, we talk a lot about classes and subclasses and how sometimes particular subclasses, the focus gets really, really narrow and to the point that it almost it makes it unuseful. But I, I'm thinking about like the Gloomstalker Rogue, for example, which if you're in the Underdark, having a Gloomstalker Rogue as one of your support roles is almost a necessity because they are so highly specialized to that particular environment. They're going to help you navigate. They're going to help you set traps. They're going to help you understand what's down there. They're going to be able to do the thing when you're down there. But again, they're super specialized. And sometimes that's where these support roles are coming about. They're really specialist roles. But that's a ranger. But to that point... Yeah, you're right. Sorry. A Gloomstalker ranger who then takes on a feet or another feet can then do as opposed to being your primary mobility person can be your range support or they can be your melee damage support and then when you get into that environment that role changes to that mobility so thinking about how those things express themselves 
reports thinking about how your lineage options or your weapon selection can impact these things. Some are relatively neutral to the rules. Some classes, subclasses are neutral to the rule and entirely dependent on what weapon you choose or what feature you choose. You know, a fighter can be multiple things in this list. However, once you choose your fighting style, once you choose your weapon, once you choose your first or second feat, now you start to narrow those options a little bit because now at sixth and seventh or eighth level, you are no longer able to do the other thing well enough to be effective for the CR ratings you're drawing, right? You're no longer doing high enough damage as a range person if you put all your stuff into great weapon fighting and slasher. Now you've pretty much said, I am using a great axe or a great sword. You've pretty much just locked in at that point. If you choose a defensive fighting style and those feats and that weapon, you're pretty much locking yourself into the, the tank aggro role. And if you're happy, you're fine. But understand that it took you several levels to really lock in that choice. If at first level you chose lances and spears or lances or bows and archery and you put dex as your prime stat, you're moving more towards a range support kind of role. That doesn't mean you're bad at it. You could do a lot of damage if you have the right stuff going. If you pick those right feats, you know, you, you pick the archery feat, you take the crossbow expert, and you take all these other things. You can take things to make yourself exceptionally effective in that role. There are ways to do that, but you have changed your role through your choices. So when we're talking about these mechanical roles, you're going to fill them whether that's what you want to do based on your choices at a certain point. It's understanding the choices you make and are those choices supporting where you feel you wish to go. And that's why we're saying these things. We're not saying these to pigeonhole people. We're saying the, we're talking about this so that you have the opportunity to make informed decisions. Right. And so you can think about what you want to make your choices based on for what role you want to fill, what direction you want to head. So... And understand that sometimes those roles are going to be situational, right? And that, like we talked about with the rogue, you know, two rogues are not going to handle a single combat in the same way, and they may not handle every combat in the same way that they handled the first one, right? And when we start talking about kind of situational shifts, that we're going to get into kind of the social roles also, right? And I think that that's a that's a really good bridge to, to get in there, because if you're talking about your social roles and what kind of interactivity a party is having with NPCs and with the world as a whole, you know, these are all things which are going to be highly situational. If a party is going into a wizard's tower to study information, then it may not be appropriate for one character to be leading the investigation or for to be leading the discussion to the residents that live there versus going into an army barracks in a town or going into a noble's household or something like that. So there are a variety of roles from a social point of view that you also want to be thinking about when you're thinking about roles from a mechanical point of view. And so, Luanika, I know these were certainly more along the list of things that you put together here. So why don't you go ahead and dive into those? Yeah. So I really wanted to talk about this element because it, and it came out of conversations the three of us were having leading up to this recording. We were talking about roles and we were talking about it mechanically, but then I was thinking about the way we like to think about story and story driven. And I was thinking that the mechanical roles, the structural roles we were talking about seemed 
flat for story driven information a little bit like it was something there's something not there i don't want to say flat flat's the wrong They're basically word. a combat element i mean structural uh, structural roles are basically a combat they, they yeah. were combat roles but i felt there was something missing like there was some element of all the great genre shows that we talk about on our side quest that wasn't there there was something missing and then it dawned on me that they were roles we weren't talking about the roles people play in that way and something came out of a recent game where one of my players took the time out of her efforts to make sure everybody was kind of taken care of at one moment and i and my first thought was wow that was a really cool thing and then it dawned on me that that's a role she's fulfilling has been fulfilling for a long time similarly uh in that same game and uh, yeah the the uh similarly our paladin was doing a lot of the same thing it, it, it but expressing it slightly different he was definitely doing it more from uh means of are these the right choices that we're making are these the right things are we doing the right thing like, so he had a different take on that but and, and it dawned on me that our party that formed as a bunch of pregens but the roles that i did not set i set up the pregens based on the combat roles but natural role play and the evolution of the players playing the game fell into some of these other roles. And they change in their fluid based on the situation, where we are, who's doing what, that type of thing. So I wanted to talk about those. And in a very similar fashion, there's like five general social roles that I think are filled. Five general ones. And then there's one that's a little different that doesn't work in every setting. So I'll save that one for last. Because there are some settings where that would never come up and it doesn't really fit well. But in some settings, it is. And so we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But uh, among the social roles, the first one came to mind was the planner. This is the person who likes to set forth, here's how we should attack. Here's the strategy. Or here's how we should approach this. Or let's go to this town before that town. Or let's do this mission instead of that mission. Or what have you. Now, there are parties where this is by design. The storyteller says John is the leader. And there are parties that are formed where people just fall to the role player that has the most experience. I think that it is better when it happens organically because when a storyteller picks a leader and says John is your leader, it can go sideways. I've had a number of games, not my current ones, where things went sideways when a leader was chosen. In the game I play in, we have a really cool dynamic, which happened somewhat organically in that I joined the game a little bit late. I don't know if there was a party leader chosen before I got there. I joined around sixth or seventh level. But shortly thereafter, NPCs were asking who's the leader. I'm playing a big old Warforged Battlemaster, and I said, I'm not in charge of anything. But I'll take care of the tactics. When we get into combat, I will be the guy who steers the tactics. So I stay out of leadership roles in anything about selecting the mission. But once we're in a tactical situation, then I step up and take that role. Conscious role-playing choice. It's not that I can't do one or the other. It's I want everybody to have their place to shine. So I've chosen to not be the planner. Chose not to be the planner. I don't think it was very nice for you to go ahead and call out Emperor Kelson by name like that. That was a, that was a, that was a little rude. But not just that, but I think that it's, it's very important to note that, you know, 
Anybody in the party at any given time can step up to be the leader in a given moment. Sometimes all that a role-playing group needs to move from point A to point B is somebody in the party to say, okay, let's grab your stuff and let's go. Like that is, you know, role-playing games in particular at least the ones that I play at, can so easily devolve into inaction when people are trying to decide what is it that they want to do. And really all it just takes is one person confidently saying, you know what, let's do this. And everybody will go, you know? And so like, I, I think that you're, what you're talking about with having it come from organic or role play is absolutely right. It really just takes a character and player to say, you know what, it's enough talk. Let's go. We re- we would run into that situation with LARP all the time about how like scenes would just drag on and on and on because nobody wanted to make a decision and nobody liked the decision that was being made. So as a result, it just was discussion and discussion and discussion and no game. It was it wasn't even good role it wasn't even good role play. It was just like bickering back and forth because nobody would step up and actually do something. So and pro tip for storytellers out there, if you've got a party where this is happening, Time to make an encounter happen. We've got a DM who does it. If we're sitting around, not going anywhere, not doing anything long enough, something's going to happen. Just do that. The first couple times you do it, they'll get the point. They'll figure out a way. It'll happen organically from then on, or at least it won't happen as frequently. I will say that I tend to play the character who, if they're not the leader, they will not try to make the plan. They will not do the whatever. But they will definitely be the one, we've talked about this long enough, I'm getting antsy, let's go. Because I storytell enough where I recognize when we've hit that plateau. Every plan has been discussed. Every option and every permutation has been thought about, discussed, shot up, shot down, and slice and dice. At this point, there are three options. Pick one, let's go. None is better than the others. None are worse than the others. We're going to go and the DM's going to give us whatever he had planned for us. Let's do this. And I will play the character who just does that at a certain point because I don't want the game to devolve into two, three sessions of standing in one spot. So pro tip for DMs, throw in the optional encounter when things like that happen. Pro tip for players, somebody at the table, let the conversation happen. Let the options be discussed and role played. But once you go over one of the plans three times, make a call. Yep. Now, a lot of people might think that the planner, leader, action taker role and this next role that we're going to talk about are always routinely the same, the same person or the same role. And they're not necessarily, right? So we're next talking next about the face of the party, the person that is identifying. I mean, I think they can be the same. I mean, I think in certain situations they could be, but they don't, they, they certainly don't have to be, right? Yeah. A, a perfect example of when the face can become the leader of the party is the A-team, right? If you take the A-team as a show, Hannibal is the leader, face is face. That's a fact, right? You got John Hannibal Smith as the leader. He's the planner. You've got face as the face man. He's the guy that's having the conversation, doing the thing. If you take the A-team, the movie, it was a passing of the guard. Hannibal was teaching face to be the leader. And then the end plan that ended the movie in the big climax, it's a spoiler alert for a movie that's about eight and a half years old, the plan was Face's plan, not Hannibal's plan. That was very key. So it's an option where in that moment, the Face became the leader or the planner for that one moment. 
But that was by design. That was literally, uh, he was passing the torch. He's trying to teach his successor that job. And I thought that was beautifully played out in that film. Yeah. For, for people that have watched TV since 1986, I think another example for that would be Captain Picard from Next Generation, who was very much... Now, the military structure put in place the fact that he was the decision guy. And when decisions needed to be made, he was the one that said, engage. He's the one that said, go. And he was absolutely 100% and on some level the face of the entirety of the Federation, but certainly the face of that entire crew. That's because he was a commander. I mean, once you get into military roles, now you're combining a bunch of things like that. But on the more loose sense here, you got the planner, the tactician, you could work it that way. The face, we stick with the A-team because he was called face and he was so cool. But the face in D&D is your most eloquent person. It's your person who's going to be able to charm the aristocrats, right? It's your bard. It's your simian who can who can fit into high society and, you know, grease the palms. But interestingly enough, because it is a role I love playing, it is a social role I love playing, but I didn't want to express it like it is frequently. I wanted to bust the trope. The trope is the face is always the bard of the party. The face is always the rogue of the party or the face is the rogiest of the fighters, right? Which I kind of did, but in general, I was like, no, he's a straight up, he's a knight, but he's also the face of the party. I wanted him to have that charming, that kind of je ne sais quoi, because I thought that was different than what we see often enough, that that would be different. Like, I didn't want him to be a roguish fighter. I wanted him to be the face, but I wanted to be a stand-up. This is... I expect him to, like, I expect all the jokes about him being too stiff. But I thought that that would be the way to express him in a way that would fit with the setting of Candle Keep. Like, I didn't feel that that Candle Keep required a brutish big, big fighter. Right. Yeah, we we talked a lot about that, about how you know, you can you can come into Candle Keep playing the barbarian with an intelligence of four. We're just not sure how much of a good time you're going to have. Right. And so I thought this was the best way to do that. And I've enjoyed it vastly. A fantastic character. And kudos to Josh because the banneret was the one I ranked the lowest. And I can't imagine not having played this character. Like we said, we say the face because Dirk Benedict playing Templeton Peck defined that role. It existed long before he played it. It was a trope long before he played it. But Glenn A. Larson, when he built the A-Team as a show, said... I'm actually going to call the character the trope. And from that day forward, that's when it was really in the public lexicon as far as that's what we, we call it. I mean, I don't recall ever calling that type of role the face before I saw the AT. Well, the next one that we had here on the list, I'm going to dive into again because it mentions one of my favorite characters throughout kind of the last 20 years of television. And that's Elliot from Leverage as the intimidator enforcer role, you know, the tough guy, the typical meathead fighter, you know, th that's, he's the barbarian of the, I mean, he's got a higher intelligence than four, but I mean, the, the, the barbarian with the intelligence of four that doesn't know which, which way of, which handle of club to hold, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like that's the, you know, that's your intimidator meathead guy. We see, we see it in the Nevers in, in the Nevers when they first meet the beggar king, the big brooding reborn guy outside and he kind of just kind of like looks into the carriage until the beggar, you know, 
excuse me, could you give us the room? It's like, you know, it's like, you know, oh, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's Frankenstein. It's, you know, it's that kind of like, they're not expected to be the brains of the party. They are expected to be the brawn of the party. And that's, you know, he picks things up and puts them down, you know. But, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because, it, again, going back to a game I run at a table, I have an NPC who filled this role till I backed her off to allow one of my other characters to step into that role. I built a feminine character who handles the role. She's the defender of one of the noble PCs in the group. Uh, basically her entourage and she was fiercely defensive and she was not burly in the burliest sense and she is a fighter class but she's all about she will stick somebody who gets too close she is not a take prisoners kind of lady and she is actually a lady she is noble by birth but she is the enforcer and the lady in waiting for the pc and she is brutal in that role that's why i actually called it intimidator slash enforcer because she is more of the intimidator her job is to scare the piss out of people who step to her boss and i think there's a lot of roles that fit that but even still even within that there are tons of shows that have things you mentioned elliot spencer great character i'm a big fan of him but i always thought of till from stargate sg1 he is an enforcer. He's the big guy on that show. Ronan from Stargate Atlantis is the big guy. There's a sergeant in Stargate Universe. If you want to talk about roles that have tropes, Jane in Firefly, this is one of the most common tropes in any genre party type story. I honestly think Buffy's probably the only one that doesn't have it because it is very focused on Buffy being this role. But it is because it is Buffy. And similarly, with the Nevers, it's Amalia True. She is the face. She's the enforcer. And let me tell you, she is intimidating. She gets that done, you know, and also taking the role of planner. Now, in your party, at your game table, this is why I say these things can be fluid. They can change during the course of a long-running campaign because you need to allow situations. If somebody has better background in one area and this party is moving into this area, maybe that person should be the face because it's their hometown. You know, when Jane goes to the planet where they worship Jane, he's the face of the party, you know? Right. There's lots of specifics where things can shift, but in terms of the overall social role... I think the Intimidator is a great class... It can be expressed out of anywhere. Like like I said, you can be the burly fighter and express the intimidator role. You can be the wizard who just flat out kills people. You can be a grave domain cleric and be intimidating as all get out. You could be a bard. Yeah. Halfling who just makes the guy get down on his knees so he can lean into his face and spit as he yells. Yep. There are so many different ways to express each of these roles. Don't think that any one of these roles, specifically the social roles, do not feel that you need to be a class to play the social roles. Every social class has something, both in literature, in film, and on TV, where you'll see this role expressed that way. So you can take that and say, this is kind of what I'm doing. This is where I'm leaning. And it gives you that opportunity to really shine in those moments outside of combat. All right, we have a couple more that we want to go through here. So the next one on the list is the counsel to the leader role, that voice that 
checks in with most likely the planner or sometimes the face, depending on who's kind of wearing the leadership hat at that particular moment in time. The moral compass. The moral of the compass group. of the group, exactly. The one that makes sure that the leader is acting in accordance with the leader's actual morals and and virtues. And some great examples here. Shepherd Book from Firefly, again, one of my favorite characters probably of all time. Such a such a great show. And acted so brilliantly about the ability to understand Mal's perspective and tell Mal that he's wrong in a way that you know like normally when people tell Mal that he that he's wrong they get shot book could tell Mal that he was wrong and he did it in such a way that he actually was able to get Mal to stop and to think about what it was that he was doing he Mal might still have done the same thing after talking with book but at least at that point then he knew that it was wrong or cared that it was wrong oh yeah it was heartrending, heartrending, watching the look on Nathan Fillion's face in Serenity when they realized, spoiler alert for a movie that's nearly 20 years old, it was heartrending to watch the look on Mal's face when he realized that they didn't get the book in time and that book was lost. I had the unfortunate luck of watching Serenity before I watched the series Firefly. So I literally watched the movie and did not understand what the big deal was but it was so well acted that i knew it was a big deal and i thought it was just crappy writing until about a year and a half later when i watched the series and then i'm like oh my god everything in that movie made sense and then i rewatched the movie and i'm like heartrending but because his counsel was so important and and how scary is it had the show gone on, had it gotten a second life, that Mal could have gone on without having Book to advise him. It's kind of like in The Walking Dead. In The Walking Dead, Dale, in the early seasons, was the moral compass of the group by a lot. He helps them hold on to their humanity by a thread. And when it get, Dale goes down, you know the group is headed south. And it seriously, seriously does for a it while. Did. It did. They had, until they got Herschel back, the writer said, you know what? We absolutely need this role. And they got Herschel back and then they took Herschel away. And then what the show did was they kept putting somebody in that role. It went from Dale. It went to Herschel. It eventually went to Glenn. It then went to the King. Carl had it for a little while. Carl had it for a while. And right now it's like a mix between Eugene and the preacher. And the preacher seems to be falling hard right about now. It is one of those things that this is a role that appears in things. I actually put one that people don't may not think about all that often, but this is the year 2021. We are strongly hoping that we're going to get Dragonlance later this year. So I'm going to bring us back to an old Dragonlance favorite, Cameron Maher. He was a moral compass in a way that Sturm Brightblade was not, I think, because he was that. Sturm was too rigid. He was too rigid. He rubbed people the wrong way and nobody, while people understood he was coming at things from the right spot, they're like, I don't care. You're too stiff. Who cares? Caraman would be like, look, I'll do this because you're you race, but this is terrible. He, he would go along, but just the way he went along told you what you were doing was wrong. And as a reader, I found a lot of deep connection to the character of Caraman as being kind of one of the characters who at various times during the series during the first six to nine books that, that I could connect with. It's because the moral compass comes across better when it's not pointing down at you from a high horse. Yeah. If, if the moral compass is standing with you saying, I understand why this is tough, 
but I think we should do it this way. That's a very different than I'm better than you. You should do what I say. But you could try to play the role both ways if you yep. want to. Council to leader can be done different ways. You've got Deanna Troy. We tended to pick the ones that stood alongside their leaders, that stand alongside their parties and do this. But there are plenty of characters who do it in other ways that work. I think to some extent, Dr. Pulaski, to mention something that Josh brought up in our pre-episode discussions, fell into that kind of a role from a I'm talking down to you position. And that's why she came across badly, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. Well, and it's and it's why when we were talking about the next one on the list here, who's the caretaker, you know, I said, you know, Dr. Crusher, clearly a caretaker. Like, I mean, she is the chief medical officer. You know, she's a mother. She is, you know, she's, there's this question about whether or not her and Picard are on again, off again, but she's very, she very, con- she's very concerned about everybody on the ship. She wants to make sure. But if they are, they're discreet. Right. You know, but Pulaski was never, ever the den mother. She was never the one. I mean, as again, chief medical officer, clearly she cared about the people that were on the ship, but you never would have known it from her demeanor. I mean, she had the bedside demeanor of a cold fish and it's because she was, you're absolutely right, Luanika, she was filling more of that counselor type role where she's like, she's going to tell you how wrong what you're doing is not try to soothe your feelings and make it better. A little bit of Guinan. Oh, Guinan's a great example of a counselor. I think a little bit of Neelix. I was going to say Neelix was one of the ones that I really went Dark to. Star Trek's full of them. Let's talk our, everybody's favorite Ferengi. If you're at DS9, if you're at that bar, he's actually a great caretaker. He may act as though he's not caring for you, and he may charge you two or three pieces of gold pressed platinum, but he cares. You're not wrong. Quark is a caretaker if he cares about you. Yes. If he doesn't care about you, he doesn't give a crap. Right. But to the crew, to the eight or nine members of the cast of that show, he was absolutely their caretaker, absolutely in their favor. And I thought that was a brilliant way to play that role. Armin Shimmerman, who's great and brilliant, everything he does, every genre he does, every guest appearance and everything I've ever seen him in, from Law and Order to SG-1 to multiple Star Trek appearances, I have never, and Buffy, I have never seen him do anything that I have not liked. He is damn good. All right, so, Lunik, I know that there was one other one that sort of doesn't fit exactly within kind of the realm of Dungeons & Dragons, but you wanted to bring up, and that's the role of of the wheelman. And I think, honestly, we talked about Wash from Firefly. You have another example here of Tom Paris from Voyager, that supreme pilot role from Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Starbucks. Thank you. We need to rename this one the Ace. Not Wheelman. That's what I was saying. I had some help for you. That's why we were struggling with because Wheelman doesn't work in D&D. It's the cool guy. In Tombstone, it's Doc Holliday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in Shadow and Bone, he'd be Jesper. Don't go too far with that. I'm only on episode two. I promise you, audience, we are going to do a full review of Shadow and Bone. After episode two, I am 100% in for the ride. Oh, oh we got good good stuff coming for you that was originally suggested by one of our patreons marty napier sent that one to me after he'd watched it i had already binged it with my kids thought it was a great idea and pitched it to the team so thanks marty yeah and one of my children had actually watched it i actually caught a scene from episode one that i thought was interesting asked him what it was he told me the name i promptly forgot about it 
and did not connect that name with what was suggested. And then one of our other audience members had posted to our Facebook group and talked about it. So, and there was some conversation that generated there. So it was definitely something that I knew I had to look into because we're catching from multiple sources to kind of look at this thing. And then I actually watched episode one and half of episode two about 12 hours ago. So this is very fresh in my mind and I'm absolutely loving it. And uh, wow, I am thinking how much fun I could have with Eberron and this show. So there are some great connections. We'll save that for that show. That's that's a whole other piece. But you're right. The Ace works really well in that consideration. In alternate settings, yeah, a wheelman works if you're doing a modern game. A wheelman works if you're talking about airships in Eberron or, or something like that. I think there are applications where the person who owns the boat or provides the transportation, maybe they're the one running the coach if you're doing some kind of travel thing or you're a caravan guard or, or you're riding with it. Whoever owns the mystery machine with that role, its applications are a bit limited in the standard Faerun D&D game. But being the ace, the one that like flashy, that stands out, that does that super really cool hot all in the moment kind of thing. That is a role that uh, definitely can fit. And I can see different people uh, falling into that um, in some discussions about tropes the term Lancer comes to mind where they're not the leader, but they're the one who is allied with the leader, but often opposes the leader for spotlight uh, in a narrative way, not in a player V pillar kind of way. Uh, those really kind of fit. So I think any of those types of concepts work well in that role. If there's some player agreement and work that out. All right. So let's try to wrap this up here and, say what we're hoping our listeners are getting out of this. And I guess what I'm what we're hoping is that you are able to recognize that from both kind of a mechanical, statistical combat point of view, there are there are roles which any properly kind of balanced party can and should have within them. And that also from kind of a social dynamic point of view, there are roles which a properly balanced party should have in them, and that the intersection between those two piles is varied, can vary by situation by situation, and even kind of within the roles, there's a lot of variance in terms of how to approach any of these particular archetypes or roles at at your table to go ahead and deliver kind of the the best possible role-playing experience for everybody involved, storyteller and for players involved. I would absolutely agree with that. I think the key is understanding that these are things to be considered not choices that should be mandated or enforced right they are ideas they are concepts if you have them in your mind as you create i think you'll have better ability to be inspired and to be inspiring for others at your table i think another way to look at it is you can use these two different types of roles to help you decide what would be the best role for you to play when you're looking at a new campaign or a new group. When you're having that pre-talk with the other players about what kind of characters you're going to be, you can decide. And you don't have to be balanced. I mean, we're talking about balance gives you an ideal set of skills for different situations. But you can throw balance out the window if you want to and be whatever you want. But you have that opportunity to talk and then kind of use that to help you decide on what you want to be. 
you know, if you're not sure, look at the roles. Do you want to be somebody on in melee or somebody further back? That kind of narrows you down a little bit. Look at the social ones. And in the end, if you decide that you really want to be the ace and you want to be an arcane caster, well, then you're going to build a really specialized caster that does like some really amazing things, maybe a sorcerer with a meta magic and things that they can do. And you can use the roles to help guide you towards a class that you might be interested in playing. And here's the neat thing, because our goal is always to make your next role legendary. If you're absolutely short of ideas, we've put these in six and six options. Roll 2d6 of two different colors. Call one your mechanical role and one your RP role and make the character from there. Excellent. If you want to go the random route. Yeah. yeah. I love that idea. That's fabulous. That's fun. All right, everybody. Thank you again for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Night, y'all. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.